Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. So excited that you're here tonight. So excited that there are people from different churches here tonight. Uh, obviously, there are a few Harbonites here tonight, but also uh, our friends or brothers and sisters from New Branch, folks from some other churches as well, folks from the, the community. Uh, I'm so thankful that you've come to celebrate Jesus with us. Again, we're in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And uh, I know I just told you to sit down, but I want to have you stand up one more time. One of our traditions here at Harbin's is to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. It's just a way of reminding us that, that what we're hearing, what we're about to read, has the, the same kind of authority that if Jesus Christ were standing here in the flesh speaking these words to you. Luke chapter 2. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. Luke writes, under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear." And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, over the next few minutes, I pray that you would speak through your word. Your word is powerful. Your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Father, I pray that you would do what I cannot do, which is impact hearts and minds through the precious Word of God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You've uh, you probably have all have heard the saying, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes familiarity can breed just kind of a ho-hum apathy. And, and I do get concerned that that's what happens with familiar passages like the one that we read in just now in Luke chapter 2, it, it, where, where this story 
it just becomes part of the background furniture of Christmas. It blends in with all the other background furniture, with, with, the, with the hallmark greeting card manger scenes, with the precious moments nativity sets that we, that we put up in our homes, with the Christmas pageants where we take pictures of our cute kids dressed in towels and sandals with little canes as they play the role of the shepherds with phrases like, peace on earth, good will to men, Ebenezer Scrooge, Tiny Tim, God bless us, everyone, all of this background furniture, and Luke chapter 2 becomes lost in the middle of all the other background furniture of an American Christmas. May that change tonight. My prayer is, is that as we uh, take another look at an old story, the Holy Spirit will help us to hear what He wants to say through His Word and One of the things he wants us to recognize this evening is that Jesus is king. Look down with me at verse 11 in chapter 2. Notice that the angel identifies this newborn child as Christ. Christ. That is a, uh, it's not a name, it's a royal title. It means anointed one. In the Old Testament, the word for anointed one was Mashiach, Messiah. His title Messiah was given to Old Testament kings such as David, such as Saul. These were men who were anointed by God, set apart by God for the purpose of ruling over the people of God. And the notion of baby Jesus being a monarch is strange to 21st century ears. We're not used to the idea of having a supreme ruler, a sovereign, who is totally in charge of everything. But in the Scriptures, Jesus is not revealed as a senator, as an elected official. Instead, Jesus is revealed as king. And not only do we see that this king is Jesus, we also see that this king is God. The angel says to the shepherds in verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, And look how he identifies Christ after that. He calls him the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. He's God himself. And if you follow the the story of the Bible carefully, that's not shocking. God has always intended to have kingship over his people. And yet sinful, rebellious man rejects the kingship of God, so people turn from God, and instead they put their hope in men. And, and, and you see that example actually played out in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8. And there you have God speaking of himself as a monarch, and he speaks of Israel as a people who has rejected his kingship. And God, if you follow the story, God allows the people to have kings like the other nations have, but he also says, you need to know that these kings won't be like me. They will be harsh, they will be domineering, they will be arrogant. And as you read through the Old Testament, you find exactly that. You find that king after king after king does not fully live up to the expectations of the people. None can fully deliver. None can fully protect them. Many deliberately abuse them, and even the best of kings, like David, who who, starts out so promising. He ends up failing and falling drastically short of the kind of king that the people ultimately need, that we ultimately need. But near the end of David's reign, God promises him that a new king will come, a descendant from him, a descendant of David, whose throne will last forever. And roughly a thousand years after God made that promise, in the fullness of time, 
in the little town of Bethlehem, an offspring, a descendant of David, is born to a young virgin named Mary. And Christmas marks the coming of that ancient king. And Luke chapter 2 highlights three things in particular about this king. These are all very brief, but the the first thing that, that Luke highlights is the king's advent. And then we learn a little bit about the king's witnesses, and finally we see a proclamation of the king's peace. The first thing is the advent of the king. Jesus, in his birth, is immediately distinguished and separated from the imperfect, sinful rulers of this world. From the very beginning of Jesus' entry into the world, we see a difference between him and other kings. The rulers of this age are proud. They are arrogant. They exalt themselves. They grasp for more and more power. That's true of Middle Eastern monarchs. It's true of 21st century American politicians. The rulers of this age crave respect and applause from the world. They seek to, to impress those around them. They are like strutting peacocks. They are, they are puffed up and prideful. And yet, what do we learn about Jesus in Luke chapter 2? How does this king make his entrance onto the world stage? He, he doesn't make his entrance in a royal palace. He doesn't come on the scene in Rome, the epicenter of the world's most powerful empire. He doesn't come charging in on a war horse, cleaving his enemies in two with a sword. Instead, the king comes into the world in humble and even humiliating circumstances. Our modern, sanitized, Christmas postcard versions of the nativity prevent us from fully appreciating what happened that night, 2,000 years ago. In our imaginations, we've turned the birth of Jesus into an airbrushed, sentimental, Norman Rockwell kind of image. It almost looks like a good time with clean hay and straw scattered throughout this wooden stable that makes for a nice soft place to lay down. It looks almost as comfortable as our bedrooms. And there's always that that sliver of moonlight coming down at just the right place and gently resting on the, the child's calm face. Of course he's not crying. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. The animals, they're almost smiling. It's all very pretty. It's all very clean. It's all very sanitized. And probably nothing like would really happen. This had been hard for Joseph and Mary, wouldn't you think? They've traveled 90 miles. They're tired. Mary is ready to burst. Her baby could come at any moment. No one's going to take them. No one's taking them in. And the king makes his entrance into the world in a place that was smelly and unsanitized, and uncomfortable, surrounded by a bunch of stinky animals in their filth. How different Jesus is from the arrogant kings of this world. How humble our king is. Later on, when he's grown up, Jesus turns to the weary souls around him, and he says, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." Christ's advent into the world shows us his superiority over the rulers of this age. Earthly kings 
tend to exalt themselves for their own benefit and selfish gain. They try, to, they try to climb up the ladder and be God. But the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ lowered himself for the benefit of his people. We learn something about this king in his advent. But Luke also introduces us to the king's witnesses. When the angel comes and brings this good news to earth, whom does he reveal it to? Shepherds. And again, we tend to sanitize this. We envision these shepherds as cute and cuddly, like like precious moments figurines that, that we set up in our nativity sets. But sheep herders in ancient Palestine, would have been known as a tough, rough group of folks. Shepherds who are tending their flocks by night are not standing around gazing up at the stars like some precious moments figurines. Instead, they're on guard. They're alert. They're keeping their eyes open for wolves, for predators, for dangers. And, and, and these shepherds knew how to deal with predators. If a wild beast comes and threatens the flock, a good shepherd's going to go after it with its staff and knock its teeth out. These were rough and tumble guys. But they were also considered considered on the low rung of Jewish society. They weren't rulers. They weren't members of the religious and cultural elite. They weren't wealthy. They weren't powerful. And yet it's, it's these that receive the angelic visitation. And again, God is turning things on their heads and doing things the exact opposite of how the world would do it. This is not how we would have written the script. We would have preferred for the angel to announce the birth of Jesus first to the religious leaders. Or, better yet, this is, this is what I would like in the, in the movie in my brain. How about having angels invade the imperial palace of Caesar Augustus? Wouldn't that be cool? Caesar Augustus, he was so revered by people that he was called the savior of the world. And and so in the movie, in my mind, I've got these angels invading the palace, invading the throne room, and saying, guess what? You're not the savior of the world. The true savior has been born. Bend the knee, Caesar. That's how I would have written the script, gotten J.J. Abrams to direct it. But that's not how God wrote it. Instead, the first ones to receive the divine revelation that the, div- that the divine king has been born are a bunch of rough, unschooled, ignorant, at least ignorant compared to the, 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 the wisdom of this world, sheep herders. And that's so ironic. Because guess what the religious leaders were called back then? Shepherds. And like shepherds with sheep, they, the religious leaders, were to care for and tend to the people of God, shepherding the people and discipling the next generation with the Word of God. But by the time you get to Luke chapter 2, you have a religious establishment in Israel who has forgotten the Word of God. They're not eagerly looking to the promise of redemption that's to come in the Messiah. They're, They're false shepherds. And these false shepherds of Israel... The Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes, they are held in high esteem. They are honored. They are respected. They're considered by the world to be important and powerful. And God passes over them because they're false shepherds. 
And instead, God graciously turns to actual shepherds in the fields, these rough, ignorant, non-respectable types. And He sends an angel to them to give them a message, and these lowly shepherds end up doing what the prestigious false shepherds refuse to do, and that's to testify about Jesus, the Messiah. On this first Christmas night just outside of Bethlehem, God is showing us what kind of king the Messiah would be. God's showing us that God's favor does not correlate with earthly fortune. God is not a God of the elite. He's not a God of the rich and famous or the super religious. God rubs shoulders with the outcasts, with the poor, uh, with people that we would turn our noses up at. This is a picture, by the way, of what Jesus' life would be like during his whole ministry. These are the people that Jesus was born to save. The humility of Jesus is so unlike us, isn't it? Born to a young poor girl from despised backwater Nazareth. They had funny accents in Nazareth. That's what everyone else thought. Born in the filth of animals and beautiful angels announcing his birth to dirty shepherds. Here we get a glorious preview of what the king, his character, and his ministry will be like. Even at his birth, this one who is so great is also so humble. He's not a tyrant like Caesar or like Satan. He is a benevolent king. And this is why the angel can say to the shepherds, fear not. And this is my final observation in regards to the king's peace. Verse 10, the angel says to the shepherds, fear not. Now, when the angel says, fear not, he's not simply saying, calm down, it's okay, I'm not a monster. He's saying, fear not, because it's a natural thing for a sinner to fear. In the very beginning of the Bible, in that paradise of God known as the Garden of Eden, when the first two humans named Adam and Eve, when when they heeded the serpent's temptation and they sinned against God, what was their first reaction? Fear. They hid. It's a natural thing for a sinner to fear, to have fear of judgment, fear of rejection, fear of our sins being exposed, fear of death. And that fear has spread to all of Adam and Eve's descendants. It has been spread to you and to me because we share in Adam and Eve's revolt against God. Every single person in this room has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so we have good reason to fear. And yet, nevertheless, the angel's announcement of the arrival of the Messiah begins with these incredible words, fear not. Why? Because of the gospel. Gospel, by the way, means good news. And the good news is that peace between God and man is available. Now, this, is, this is huge. Because although sinful man stands under the condemnation of God with hell on the horizon, this child who's laying in a feeding trough has come to bring reconciliation between God and man. 
And anyone who has read the beginning of the Bible would not be surprised. God always intended to bring reconciliation. Even as he is bringing judgment on humanity's very first sinners, Adam and Eve, even as he's bringing judgment upon them, he simultaneously is giving them a word of hope. He gives them the gospel. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which some of you know is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I think it's a Christmas verse. And in Genesis 3.15, God turns to the devil. He turns to the serpent who successfully tempted Adam and Eve to rebel against the heavenly king. And he says to the serpent that one day, one of Eve's offspring will come. And you're going to strike the heel of this offspring and wound him, serpent. But in the process, your head will be crushed. You will be overthrown. And everything that was made wrong through sin will be reversed and made right. And thousands of years later, in the little town of Bethlehem, it happens. The the, the promised offspring of Eve, who is the offspring of Mary, who is the Son of God, arrives into the world. And why was he born? He was born to die. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus became a man that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death have been held in lifelong bondage. So Jesus comes along as the good shepherd and he knocks the teeth out of the serpent. He defangs the enemy. Jesus' death on the cross was the head-crushing blow that overthrows the devil. But how? How does that happen? How does the death of Christ defeat Satan and free mankind from his grip? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, big fancy word, has to do with the turning away of God's wrath from sinners. And Jesus does this through becoming a substitute for sinners who deserve hell. Sinners who were doomed. Sinners who were under condemnation. On the cross, Jesus bore the full wrath of God that we deserve. And if Jesus is our substitute, then we have no need to fear death. We have no need to fear hell or fear judgment. Why? Because Jesus has already died on our behalf. He's already experienced hell on our behalf. He has experienced the full wages of sin, and his payment counts as ours and is credited to our accounts, and therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is why the angel can say, fear not. And this is why the angel says in verse 14... And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There may be some of you in this room that have no peace this evening because your conscience is testifying to you, I'm at war with God. You just just know that deep down inside. You've been in a battle against God for as long as you can remember. Maybe you're thinking, I want that peace. But the angel said, it's only for those with whom God is pleased. So how do I please God? I mean, I'm such a sinner. How in the world can somebody like me please somebody like God? Scripture says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Faith. Faith is the means by which God 
is pleased with his people. And what does, what does faith in Jesus, what does belief in Jesus look like? The Bible tells us, and this was read earlier in the, in the service, but it's in John chapter 1, it says about Jesus that he came to his own. Jesus came to his own. Okay, that's Christmas. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So John equates believing with receiving. When you receive Jesus for all that he is, Savior, substitute for your sins, Lord, King, then you are given the right to become a child of God. Gospel tells us that God has taken the initiative to make peace with sinners. God is offering up the sacrifice of his own son's blood, which can cleanse you of your rebellion and will take away the judgment that stands between you and God if you believe. So the best response you can have to Christmas right now is to believe in Jesus Christ. I'm talking to you, unbeliever. Believe in Jesus Christ right now, tonight. This this will be the best Christmas ever if you do that. There may be others here tonight who have genuinely received Jesus. I know there are many of you here that have genuinely received Jesus. What should your response be? Well, consider the shepherds. When the shepherds hear the good news, when they hear the gospel, what's their response? Is it, well, that's pretty cool. So anyway, let's get back to work. Is that their response? That's not how they respond to the gospel. Look at verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then look down at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. These rough, tough shepherds go back to where they came from, but they go back changed. Life after the gospel is different than life before the gospel. They begin to talk and proclaim and declare what they have seen and what they have heard. They did not keep this word to themselves. They are praising God and they are spreading the good news. Why? Because they can't help it. They can't help but share what they have seen and what they have heard. And, you know, we might say, well, those shepherds, they saw and heard something pretty miraculous. They saw angels. They had a word from God. If I had all that, of course I would be telling people about it. I'd be shouting it from the rooftops. I'd tell my friends. I'd tell my neighbors if if I had something like that. But you know what? You have something better than what the shepherds have. You don't have a feeding trough with a baby in it. You have a man who has risen from the dead. You have an empty tomb. And you, you have not just a word from God, you have a relationship with Jesus who is the word of God. And the awe and the wonder that the shepherds have is an awe and a wonder that we should have this Christmas. God, help us! Because we've lost that awe. May that awe and wonder drive us to the point that even as we return to our regular lives, we cannot help but praise God. 
We cannot help but testify to the good news that we have received so that others might be saved as we are and that they might join us in celebrating the King. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this word from the Gospel of Luke. I thank you so much for the challenge that is laid before us in Luke 2. There's, a cha- there's challenges here for believers. There's challenges here for unbelievers as well. And Father, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters tonight who do believe. Father, would you, would you help us to recapture that sense of awe, that sense of wonder that maybe some of us have, have lost, maybe some of us who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years. Help us to have the proper awe and wonder and appreciation that we should have. And then, as you stir those things up in our heart, Father, help us to do what we know we should do. And that's glorify you, praise God, and tell the world about what we have heard. Father, I pray for those tonight who have come into this room this evening as unbelievers. I pray that they will walk out of this room believing. Holy Spirit, would you move on anybody in this room who has been kicking and screaming and fighting you and fighting the gospel for so long? Would you work a miracle tonight in somebody's life, God? And let them walk out of here believing and praising God with the rest of us. And Father, thank you so much for your love and for your mercy. If anybody, if any of us ever doubts your love, Father, could you remind us of what you have done You've sent your son, not just to be born, but also to die for wretches and rebels like us. That's not love. I don't know what is. So, Father, thank you so much. And, Father, help us tomorrow to really, really celebrate what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.